Well, it is truly a privilege that we have to study God's Word together, an immense blessing. We should rejoice over this every time we get the opportunity. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 19, a wonderful and vital chapter regarding the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture can be defined as the belief that the Bible is all we need to equip us and empower us for a life of faith and obedience to God. When it comes to theology, spirituality, eternal matters, theological matters, salvation, our relationship with God, the Bible is the only inerrant and inspired source of truth and power, so it is our final authority. All other authorities are subservient to this final authority of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture, as I said, maintains this, this idea that the Bible is the power of God as well. It carries with it the work of the Spirit on our hearts. Well, we read about the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture in a number of different passages, but my favorite one here is Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is a sort of uh, Psalm 119 in miniature form. You will have heard even uh, what we heard moments ago from Psalm 119. You'll hear some of that language repeated even in our passage that we're studying to you, studying today. Let me read to you that passage. It's the central part of Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Follow along as I read it out loud. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. This is the Word of God. If you were to get in a boat and sail about 3,300 miles south-southeast of here, you would end up in a group of four islands called the Pitcairn Islands, population 47. All 47 people live in the capital city of Adamstown, on the island, the actual island of Pitcairn. These people, all of them, are descendants of the traitors who instigated the infamous mutiny on the bounty. Did you know about this? I'm sure you've read or seen a movie. Happened in 1789. The the bounty was a British ship, and it was to bring some supplies, mainly breadfruit, from uh, French Polynesia, Tahiti, all the way back to the Caribbean, the West Indies, they called it back then, back to the Caribbean. They were going to bring this and supply some of the islands there with this necessary supply. And so they set sail from the Caribbean and went all the way around the bottom of uh, South America and all the way back up to the South Pacific and made it to Tahiti. And uh, what happened there was a little bit surprising. They got to Tahiti and uh, the men on the ship fell in love. They that literally fell in love with Tahitian women. Many of them found ladies there. Many of them just found the way of life to be a great way of life. Tells you how much better the, the, uh, the Pacific is than uh, the West Indies are, I guess. 
They loved this place. They loved the way of life. They loved the women there. And when Captain Bly, who was the captain of the bounty, told them, well, it's time to pack up and go, they resisted. In fact, a number of the crew just said no to Captain Bly. And like any self-respecting captain of a ship back then, he publicly flogged them. Well, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, and it probably planted the seed of mutiny in the minds of some of the crewmen there. The first mate, a guy named Fletcher Christian, he led the crew in a mutiny. They were successful. They put Captain Bly and his loyalists on a little raft and put them out where they knew the stream was flowing away from the island. They put them on that uh, raft and let them float away. An amazing story, by the way. Captain Bly and those people sailed in that little tiny boat. They, they barely fit on this boat. They sailed in that tiny boat 3,700 miles away to Indonesia and survived. Shocking that they were able to do that. I'm sure that's a story you could chase. Anyway, the mutinous, they took control of the bounty. The people in Tahiti didn't want them to stay there. They collected all their stuff. They got on the bounty, and they sailed about 1,000 miles further away from us to uh, Pitcairn. By that time in history, the island of Pitcairn, there was, it was about five square miles. There was nobody on it. It was abandoned, though Polynesians had sort of been on and off that island through the centuries. But there was no one there when they arrived there. And it was five square miles of mountainous, and mountainous beauty and white sandy beaches. They thought, now this is a great place to, to be. And uh, what do you think that they did early on when they got to that island? Well, they figured out how to distill hard liquor. And it became... A complete anarchy. They fought, they killed one another. It was a drunken brawl pretty much every single night, and it was an absolute disaster. Debauchery and fights and murder. Eventually, they did the smart thing and they burnt the ship down to the water, uh, making it to where no one could ever leave the island. When all was said and done, every single man had been murdered except for two of them. In fact, there were three, and two of the three realized that the other guy was getting ready to kill them, so they took him to a hut and chopped him up. This is the kind of thing that was happening there on Pitcairn. So it was two men and uh, 20 women and children. So these men had taken these ladies from Tahiti. They had married some of them. Some of them were, came from England, actually, with their wives, and they, they, they brought them to this island, and they got two men and these 20 women and children. One of the fellows was educated, his name was Ned Young, and he was sort of the accepted leader of the group there, abandoned at Pitcairn. Pitcairn. And uh, as he was going through all the detritus from the ship, he found the bounty's Bible, and he began to read the Bible. He was convicted of his sin. He was convinced of the truth of Christ. He took that Bible and he went to the other guy who couldn't even read and write and he began to teach him the Bible and actually teach him how to read and write. And that guy too was convicted of his sin and he was saved and they together determined that this would be a small group of Christian people. It wasn't very long. Ned Young actually died within that first year or so. And so the other fellow, his name was John Adams, not the John Adams, but another fellow named John Adams, he became the leader of this group of women and children. He set up a church, he set up a school, he began to teach people scripture, he began to teach people how they ought to operate, the, operate the morals of a society. Time went on, the 
children grew up and children from different families ostensibly married one another and they began to form a little society there on that little island. Well, about 10 years passed and there was a group, a, a ship from America called the Topaz and they spotted the island. Probably they spotted some smoke or something. They realized people were on that island and they saw that far in a distance and they sailed over to see what they would see and Remember, Adams and the people there had no way of escaping the island. They arrived there, and they found this little community there, civilized, free people, all of them professing Christians, all of them able to read and write, all of them with copies of their Bibles that they had themselves copied. He discovered that all of them were living in submission to Christ. In fact, they had none of the diseases that go along with debauchery, though there was sickness, that none of it was the diseases that you would normally find on, on people marooned on an island. All of it because, was because of that one Bible that Ned Young found. All of it was because of the power of God's Word. That Bible, by the way, still exists. You can sail down to Pitcairn, and they have a little museum there, and you can see that actual Bible. Sadly, uh, just to tell you sort of the rest of the story, sadly, like a lot of islands in the South Pacific, uh, cultic religions have made their way across the South Pacific. I don't know if you know this, but Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, they're very interested in, in dominating these islands, and they have gone down and, and drawn them away from their love of the Word of God and supplanted the Word of God, the love of the Word of God, with the love of other things. It's interesting because the, the South Pacific used to be a mission field. It was evangelized. It was declared evangelized by many of the Western countries and many People had gone, many missionaries were there, and it is now turning back away from Christ, away from Scripture, away from truth, and it's a new mission field, really. It's becoming a mission field once again. Just put that in the hopper. Those of you, especially young people, interested in missions, there's a need on islands like Pitcairn, uh, like Kiribati, and other places across Oceania. Well, the story of Adams and the Bounty's Bible is a story of the sufficiency of Scripture. In terms of spiritual life, their joy, their growth, their inner being, their relationship with God was defined and empowered by the Word of God, by a study of the Word of God. And this is true for us as well in terms of our own spiritual character, in terms of our joy, in terms of our growth, even in terms of our discovering Christ, it is a, a discovery of the Bible. So it follows... Christian life from church and preaching to music to missions to the way we operate even as Christians, it is all guided by our commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture. Our job as a church is the job of the sower we read about in Mark chapter 4. We sow the seed and we sleep. We, we believe in the power of the Word of God. We trust in, in just looking at the Word of God and doing what it says. We cannot change hearts. We cannot sanctify a Christian. But God can, and He does th through the power of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God. God has declared that He would even do this. We heard from John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth, your Word is truth. How is a Christian sanctified? The Holy Spirit, using the Word of God, changes them. Well, Psalm 19, David is thinking about all of this. Perhaps David himself had a story similar to what we heard about uh, the, the mutiny on the bounty and the bounty's Bible. He probably had stories even, uh, we read about throughout the Old Testament, stories of the people discovering the Word of God or perhaps rediscovering 
the Word of God. We read about this with Josiah many years later, discovering the Word of God and, and revival breaking out, not because they focused on revival, but because they focused on the Word of God. They discovered the Word of God, and hearts were changed, and people were saved because of the Word of God. And, and David is just mulling on all of this. He's thinking about the power and sufficiency of the Word of God, and he sits down, and he writes this beautiful song. If you remember last time, he starts the song out talking about general revelation, how beautiful and wonderful it is to, to look at uh, creation. Some of us were looking out last night and swapping pictures of the beautiful rainbow uh, toward the east and the beautiful sky on the west. Unfortunately, it didn't hang around. We got clouds again and thunderstorms. But the beautiful uh, reflection on the revelation of God in terms of general revelation, but you cannot grow you cannot know of Christ. You cannot know the special revelation, the specific revelation of God without Scripture. And so David, in his little song here, he quickly turns to the sufficiency and joy it is for him to study the Word of God. Well, if you were with us last week, we noted three things, and we're going to finish this passage by looking at the other three things. Uh, what were the first three things we learned about Scripture? Scripture is, number one, sufficient for spiritual life. That's verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That word there, law, Torah, God's instruction, God's expectations, His demands on the human race is laid out for us in the Word of God, specifying to us what He wants. Scripture is God's teaching. It's His outline of how we are to follow Him and fashion our lives and shape our lives. What are the morals? What are the character traits we should pursue? And these things extend, not just in the Old Testament, but extend in the New Testament. These demands, this moral requirement is still upon us. It's our owner's manual, how to operate, how to function in life. Until we look to the Bible, we see not just the people of the New Testament learning and, and trying to import into lives the, the moral law of God. We see this in the Old Testament. I, I mentioned this. The old people of the old, they're our kinfolk, and though they looked forward only to Christ, and we look forward and uh, we look forward and backward to Christ, they still fashion their lives in the same way because God does not change. His morals do not change. These are our kinfolk, and they're trying to abide by the law of God. David says the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. We learn that word perfect means more than just error-free. It means complete. It's comprehensive. All that you need is here. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. Morally, spiritually, religiously, all that you need in terms of your character, all that you need in terms of your understanding of God, your understanding of the broad story of the world, all that you need in terms of your morality, your ethics, God's plans for the future, how a person is saved and can survive the judgment of God in the future. In the law, we learn, and heard this in Pastor Terry's prayer a moment ago, we learn that we are incapable, but when you finally raise that white flag and give up and trust in Christ's righteousness who, who perfectly obeyed the law, what happens? You're declared righteous, and you can sing with David, Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer, down in verse 14. Your heart is awakened. The Spirit applies the Word to your heart. The Word brings life to you. And so, beginning with salvation, we learn that life and re-life, revival, doesn't happen when we make revival the objective, but when we make the Word of God, when we delight in the Word of God. Are, are you worn out? 2021, a hard year for you? 2022 is sort of starting out a little bit of a a stumble? Are you tired? Are you lukewarm? 
The answer is not to focus on passion, but to focus on the perfect law of the Lord. It will revive your soul. That's one. Two, Scripture is sufficient for spiritual wisdom. The rest of that verse, verse 7, gives us the second characteristic of these six. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony. This is divine witness, divine attestation. That's what we have in the Bible, Hebrews 6.18. It's impossible for God to lie. His testimony is sure. It is right. What He offers in the book is, is a divine witness of truth. It's the sufficient, comprehensive truth and nothing but the truth. That's why David's saying the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's certain. What does that do? When we go to the certain word, when we go to the sure word, what, what does it do for us? It fills our simple minds with true wisdom. You want to grow spiritually, don't you? You want to mature in your doctrine and your theology, don't you? Study the sure testimony of God. You want to know what the truth is? Study the testimony of God. You want to know how to deal with life and the problems that you face? Study the testimony of God. Make yourself wise in the Word by studying God's testimony. God's Word is the only sure testimony, and it's the only thing that will make people truly wise. Moving on, we begin in verse 8, which says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Number three, Scripture is sufficient for genuine joy. Precepts here means doctrines. You could say theological principles, truths about God, man, the world, truths concerning salvation and eternity, truths about sin and judgment as well as sanctification and heaven. That's what precepts are, doctrines, principles. The precepts, David sings, these are right. They are true. They are, in a real sense, true reality. They are proven. They are established, seen throughout the Bible, throughout history. And then he says, if you start to grasp these principles, you will find what? Joy. You'll find joy. Again, some Christians think that because joy is the reward, joy is what we receive, it ought to be the objective. And so they pursue sort of emotional bliss. They try to find some sort of shallow happiness in life instead of focusing on the joy that is provided for us in the Word. You focus on the Word, you will discover joy. Scripture is sufficient for spiritual life, sufficient for spiritual wisdom, and sufficient for genuine joy. And why is Scripture sufficient for these things? Because it is God's Word. This is God speaking to us, and God's Word is power. And why would any pastor, whether a worship pastor or a family pastor or the teaching pastor, why would we do anything but try to provide for you the Word of God? It's sufficient for all of these things. Number four, this is what we're getting to today, number four, five, and six, and a little bit of application here at the end. Number four, Scripture is sufficient for true discernment. Scripture is sufficient for true discernment. End of verse 8, read it with me. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment or commands, these are the specifics inside the law. The law represents sort of the, the whole system. The commands are the specific. These are the, the binding demands of God upon us. This is what He expects of mankind. He, he commands us. We see even those earliest commands of obedience, we, we learn that in obeying these commands, there is great blessing. 
There is prosperity, not always in the human sense, but there definitely is a a divine blessing, a divine hand of God on your life. There is a, a joy, even if there's hardship, even if there's persecution, we find there is great blessing in obedience. We find again in the Bible with disobedience there is sadness and cursing and hardship and difficulty. It doesn't mean it all happens all right then and there, as soon as the moment you sin, at the moment you do something wrong. In fact, sometimes it's delayed many, many years. Sometimes it's delayed all the way until judgment. But generally speaking, if a person lives their lives disobeying the commands of God, they generally lead a miserable life. They create hardship. They create sadness for themselves. They create hardship for others. Again, it may not be immediate or immediately visible, but it builds into your life hardship and cursing, not blessing. I want you guys to get this in your heart. When God commands something, since it's for His glory, and since He created humans for His glory, since our purpose as humans is to glorify Him, and we we glorify Him when we obey Him, when He commands us, it is in our best interest. It's not overbearing or unreasonable. It's not some sort of arbitrary thought that just passes through His head, and He's trying to dominate us just for some sort of wicked joy. No, these things are reasonable. They're something that brings to our lives joy. It's good for us to do. And an immature view of the commands of God is, I won't be told what to do. That's a very immature. In fact, that's ultimately what Adam and Eve said right at the very beginning. I won't be told what to do. I don't like being told what to do. And yet, if we receive these things at the command of our Creator, we abandon that fallenness, that sin, we find this as a pathway of God's blessing. How does David describe the commands of God? He says they are pure. The word pure there, Hebrew word bar, it doesn't mean pure in terms of moral purity, though that is indeed true and includes that idea. The word pure here means pure like the purity of a diamond. A better idea, maybe even the word clarity, right? You talk about three C's of a diamond, clarity. They are clear. Isn't that great? And in the Word, we have clarity. Along with the doctrine of sufficiency is, in theology, what is called the doctrine of perspicuity. You don't have to remember that word, $10 word. What does that mean? It means that the Bible is clear. Whenever we struggle in terms of the meaning of Scripture, and there are some things that really confuse us, right? There are some deep doctrines, some things that are hard for us to understand. We need to remember, whenever we struggle in that way, it's not due to lack of clarity on God's, God's part. It is due, due to our failure. We bring to the Bible baggage. We bring false interpretations. We bring habits and ideas. We bring an inability, a lack of knowledge, a lack of maturity, It's because of our own baggage and lack of wisdom that the Bible becomes unclear, but the Bible in of itself is clear, according to David right here. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema right there at the beginning, God tells the people, these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart, that you shall teach them diligently to your children, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You pick up on that second phrase there, you shall teach them to your children. The Scripture, I would even say the gospel, is so clear. It's so obvious, even children can understand. 
The commands of God, the, the ideas of morality and what God wants of us is so clear. Even children can understand these things. The Word of God is clear. It's so clear, you just give the Word of God and it begins to convict. If the Holy Spirit is kind, you can even save people. You just give the Word of God. That, that clarity comes to the mind and hearts of people. Just hand them the Word of God, just, just like what we saw with the Bounty's Bible. They open the Word of God. It's clear. It becomes obvious. They become convicted in their hearts. They begin to change. They begin to set up society and life around the truth of God's Word. It's so clear. It's so obvious. They're just doing what they've been told, and what they find is blessing and joy. Martin Luther famously said that all he did was to give the people the Word of God, the commands of God. He got them out to the people. It was so clear, it was so plain, it was so obvious that the people immediately indicted the papacy in Rome, made complete sense of them. He had to do nothing other than get the clear Word of God out. He says this, quote, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word, otherwise I did nothing. The Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. Why is that? As the people finally hearing the Word of, their, of God in their own language began to put two and two together, it became obvious what we have in Rome is not something that's scriptural, not something that's true. That's why the Catholic Church had to step aside and begin to defend what they're doing, not based on Scripture, but by defending the, the power and authority of priests and popes. These people began to see this system, and they began to attack it. Luther, all he had to do was give the Word of God, the clear Word of God to the people, and they saw the conclusion. So, the clarity of the Word... David sings here in Psalm 19, the clear, clarity of the Word, the purity of the Word, what does it do? It enlightens the spiritual eyes, into verse 8. You could say it this way, it gives us spiritual discernment. It gives us discernment. It helps us discern. I want to say a couple of things about discernment before we move on. One is this, discernment is not a hunch. Now, a lot of times we define discernment in that way. I do not deny that sometimes we have a, a sense, perhaps you call it a sixth sense, premonition that something's not good. I'd say that's probably more a series of past experiences and observations that sort of synthesize in your own brains, are very magnificent brains, and more than it's something mystical like a hunch. But that's a hunch, that's not discernment. Discernment is also not merely knowing a bunch of Bible facts. Sometimes people assume that someone is really discerning because they have a bunch of verses memorized, they have a bunch of facts memorized. I, I really uh, am glad uh, over the last few years our own program, the Awana program, which like any program, it's got weaknesses and strengths. I'm going to acknowledge that right from the top. But I am glad over the last few years that the Awana program has recognized this and said, you know what, let's not just fill these kids' minds with Bible facts and Bible verses. Let's take these verses and try to help them understand the meaning. Let's help them understand discernment. So discernment is not just having a bunch of facts listed in your brains or a bunch of verses memorized. It's putting those into some sort of reasoning. So, discernment is, that's what discernment is not, discernment is a spiritual discipline. Just mark that in your mind. Discernment is a spiritual discipline. We see it right here in the text. The people who become intimate with the Word of God, the clear Word of God, those are the people who become discerning. 
Those are the ones whose eyes are enlightened. That's the person who's given light. Your word is a lamp to my way, a light to my path. I've mentioned this before. Years ago when I worked at a, a bank, one of the ways that they taught you, in fact, I would say the primary way that they taught you how to spot counterfeit money was not by giving you lists and lists of what counterfeit money was all about, but by making you handle money, actual, real cash. The more you handled cash, the more readily you could spot a counterfeit. The more you became comfortable with the feel and the smell and the paper and the look, the more you handled real cash, the more you became discerning against what was counterfeit and false. Not that you shouldn't know anything about what is false. Of course, even in the Bible, we're taught about false systems and false patterns of thinking. But one of the ways in which we become most discerning is simply by handling the truth. You go to the Word of God again and again and again, you start to become discerning. So we conclude about discernment that discernment is achievable by any humble believer. You may think, well, I'm not very smart. I'm, I don't really know very much. I'm a new Christian. I'm new to this whole thing. I, I, I can't be counted on as being discerning. Yes, you can be discerning. If you're humble and you approach Scripture, I say humble because the moment you start to believe that you can't be fooled is when you are being fooled, right? The moment you let your guard down, you start being fooled. If you're humble, though, you always understand that I can be deceived. I, I can be fooled. I need to work on discernment. I need to work on the truth. I need to handle the truth as, as much as I can. I need to put my armor on and be armed with the truth of God's Word. If you live in pursuit of that, that humble pursuit, you will be growing in discernment. Your eyes will be enlightened. You know, that's what the Word does. As you study it, as you grow in it, as you mature in it, as you learn about it, the, the clarity, the truth becomes clearer and clearer and brighter and brighter for your way so that you become discerning. Scripture is sufficient for true discernment. Number five, Scripture is sufficient for inner peace. Scripture is sufficient for inner peace. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Interesting here that David uses the word fear as a synonym to Scripture. We know he's talking about Scripture because all of these other things that are in parallel in his poem here are about Scripture, precepts, testimony, law, later on rules. So this noun, fear, must also be a synonym to Scripture. Well, this word fear, it sounds sort of weird to us in terms of a synonym to Scripture, but it wouldn't have sound, so, sounded so weird to the Hebrews who lived in David's time because fear was another way of talking about worship, divine worship. And it would be saying something like this, that the, the Bible is a perfect guide to how we worship God, not just in terms of, uh, of worshiping Him on a, on a Lord's Day, not just in terms of our, our praise and what we do in, ter in terms of corporate worship, though that is in the Bible, but in terms of how we, how we want to follow God, how we love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This book is a worship manual. The fear of God, of course, it does include actual fear of reverence about the judge of the universe, but it also involves intimacy and joy and love. The idea of fear is all about knowing God and worshiping God with everything we are. The, uh, the book of Proverbs, a book of wise sayings, if you didn't know it, it's a book of 
of wise adages. It's really how to instruct people in terms of their worship of God, their divine standards. It was written by Solomon mainly, but it was written by a collection of authors, including Solomon, or probably, probably put together by Solomon, of how to live a life in worship of God. Right there in Proverbs 1 at the start, it says, the Proverbs of Solomon son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing and righteousness, justice, equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. And then verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It all begins with the attitude of worship. You want to know how to fear God, you open your Bible. It begins with this reverence fear, this reverent fear of God. It, begins with opening your Bible and learning what it is to worship, what it is to fear God. You avail yourself, if you fill yourself with the Word of God, you're filling your heart with the attitude of worship, the attitude of fear. In this book, we find the honor, the respect, the reverence of God. David goes on, Back in Psalm 19, the fear of the Lord is clean. Now, this word clean here, I referenced it earlier, it is indeed uh, the word for moral excellence, perfection, inerrancy. It's the word for infallibility. In other words, what we find in the Bible is a mistake-free presentation of how we are to worship God, how we are to fear God, meaning there is not one statement not one accounting, not one doctrine, not one principle or historical record that is a failure in terms of accuracy. It's not corrupt at all. It is clean. The Bible is clear of any stain. It is clear of any taint, any assumption. It is a perfect re-presentation of God. And because it is a perfect presentation of God, it calls us to worship God, to fear Him. And because it is calling us to do this, and because it does it, it is something that we can take absolute certainty in. It's something that we can trust. It's something that we can believe in, and not just believe in now, but it's something that endures forever. That's why it's related to inner peace. This confidence, this surety that we, anytime we open up the Bible, we're going to get an accurate accounting of God. Anytime we open the Word and begin to study it, anytime we give ourselves to, to learning the Word of God, we have an accurate presentation of God and how we are to worship Him. I've re referenced in these two sermons, Second Peter, a couple of times, chapter 1, we are told there how this miracle happened, had to be a miracle for this Bible to be produced. Why? Because the, the authors were human, and we do make mistakes. It had to be a miracle because for God to speak and give us His perfect will, but at the same time to use the words and language and lives of human authors, a, a miracle had to take place. And so, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter tells us about this miracle. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathed His words. The Holy Spirit breathed His words through these men. He, he used their words. He used their language. He used their thoughts to produce something that was absolutely perfect and error-free and to be trusted not just for our lifetime but for eternity. 
Peter says, this word, therefore, is more fully confirmed than even human experience, even human testimony. I like to think of the way God used these men is the way you and I use a pen, right? We pick up a pen. Different pens have different characteristics. Some of them have a certain color of ink. Some of them have a certain type of ink. Some of them have a ballpoint on the end. Some of them are a fountain, a nib, a fountain tip. Some, some are different gel points or whatever. We have all these different ways we can use, and sometimes we, we pick a pen based upon what we're using it for, right? Maybe uh, we want to use a special pen, a nice, bold pen to, to do something important with. Well, that's the way God used these different men. He, he used Paul or Peter or, in our case, David to say certain things. And though it has those characteristics and that language and those experiences are, are spoken of, it is exactly what God wants to say. God used that man and his experience and his language, even his words, ultimately to speak God's own perfect will. Peter did it, and David did it in our text, and this becomes a perfect presentation of how we are to fear God, how we are to worship God, and because of that, we can have confidence every time we open this book. We can have the peace, the inner peace that every time we open this book, what we're hearing from is God Himself, that God is speaking to us. Sometimes people look to all kinds of experiences. They look to all kinds of bizarre things, and they're, they're trusting in those things. Those things can never be proven. Those things can never be proven right or wrong. They can never be compared against what is real. Yet we can open up the Bible, and every time we open the Bible, we can be certain. We can be assured. We can find the peace that this is the will of God for us. In the Word, we find certainty. We find assurance. We find confidence. Peter says surety, certainty, all of this leads to inner peace. You worship God, you fear God according to the Word, you can find inner peace. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The Scripture is sufficient for inner peace, sufficient for true discernment, sufficient for genuine joy, sufficient for spiritual wisdom, sufficient for spiritual life. Finally, number six, Scripture is sufficient for the pursuit of holiness. End of verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. One commentator said this, gave this translation, the judgments of the Lord are true and they produce comprehensive righteousness. When someone is saved, they are granted two types of Christ's righteousness. One type of righteousness is what is called Forensic righteousness, this is what we need to stand before God in the judgment, declared righteous, right? This makes sense. Forensic, you think of evidence. This is the justifying righteousness of Christ. You, you stand before God, not clothed in your own righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is forensic righteousness. In terms of evidence, this is granted to us, by the way, when we are justified, that happens upon faith. But before that, thanks to the work of regeneration, we are given another kind of righteousness, which is called transformative righteousness. It is the power, the righteous power to do what's right, to change and to desire good, truly good things. In other words, you are given the holy desires of Jesus. 
You are given the holy desire to worship God and worship Him with all that you are. Every Christian is granted this desire. Every Christian upon regeneration, every Christian is given this holy desire to do what's right, to believe what's right, to follow Christ, to obey, to repent of sin. So in, in salvation, you're grantify, granted both the justifying forensic righteousness of Christ, but now you also have this desire. You have this desire to do what is right, to perfectly worship God. Now, the Bible is clear. We can't do that perfectly until we are glorified. But as believers, from the moment of regeneration, even through justification, even through the rest of our lives, we have these holy desires. We have this desire to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We, we want to do what's right. We have a conscience, and it's not just a conscience that, that, that thinks in terms of personal profit. Well, if I do that, I'm going to get a spanking from my parents. We have a conscience that says, I want to worship God. I want to do what's right because this honors God. No matter how much it costs me, my greatest desire is to worship. And so you have this righteous desire. One of the signs of salvation is that your desires have been changed. You desire to do what is right. This is evidenced in your willingness to have faith and repent and follow through in salvation. And it's evidenced in the rest of your life as you pursue what is right in the Word of God. You want to find what is right? You want to know what is right? You open up the Bible, and God begins to sanctify you. Just as, as I mentioned earlier, as Jesus prayed in John 17, we're changed. We're sanctified by studying the truth. Well, David begins to apply this, and it goes, flows right from this last verse. Verses 10 and 11 He says, more to be desired are they, meaning the Scriptures, the principles, the truths of the Word of God, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, keeping them there is great reward. Folks, this is the ultimate application of the sufficiency of Scripture, that you pursue it, that you desire it. You want more of the Bible in your life not less. You don't stand away from the Word of God. You, you love, you grow in your love for the Word of God. You know, think about human desire. All human desire can be categorized, put into two different categories, power and pleasure. Power, that's money and influence and political or social fame, rank, respect, authority. Those are forms of power. And power is indeed the carnal craving of many people, whether it is money or influence or stuff or land or authority. The other category of human desire is pleasure, base human physical pleasure. This can be sexual pleasure, pleasure of eating, food, fine dining, fine wine, recreation, rest, sleep, so forth, pleasure of escape. You'll find pleasure in escaping by being inebriated. Think about that the last couple of days. Now, that is not to say all of those things, some of them certainly are sinful, that's not to say all of these things in terms of power and authority and wealth or anything is, any of that stuff is necessarily wrong, but many of those things are not inherently wrong. I mean, Jesus Himself had some of that. He had authority. He had influence. He enjoyed food, for sure. 
God gave married couples this beautiful intimacy. That's certainly not wrong. But what David is doing here is forcing us to put a different desire, not just power and pleasure, but put a different desire above those two human desires. Scripture, the Word of God, is to be desired, he says, more than gold, that's power, or tasty honey, that's pleasure. So above everything else, you put a desire to know and learn the Word of God. You put it above all desires for pleasure and power. Moreover, you do this, David says, and you find great warning. You are warned away. You are cautioned away from danger. The world is a dangerous place. The two desires of your heart can take control of you and take control of you in terms of sin. So you put a passion for the Word above all else, and what will happen, David says, you will find great reward. What's the great reward? Well, he's already told us some of these things. It's holiness, it's peace, it's discernment, joy, wisdom, it's life. Give yourself to the pursuit of God's Word, and that's what you'll find. Those are the rewards you will find. Why? Because it's God's Word. And yet what you will find in studying God's Word is you will find the reward ultimately is God Himself. We don't hold to the sufficiency of Scripture or any of the doctrine just as cold, hard fact, the veracity of truth. No, we hold them because by doing so, we find a great relationship with our Creator, God. How about you dedicate the new year, this new year, to the study and understanding and application of the Word of God? How about you start fresh, eat the fruit of the Word of God? I know you're thinking of other things in terms of resolutions and eating right and exercising more, but why don't you eat of the Word of God? Why don't you feed on the truth of the Scripture? Resolve to give yourself to the study of God's sufficient Word. I'm telling you, there's great reward, God Himself. Let's pray we'll all do this. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We pray, Lord, that You will apply these things to our heart. We pray that through the preaching of Your Word, You will have changed our hearts. You will have given us a deep desire to know and study and obey your word, for it is sufficient for all these things. And by giving ourselves to these things, Lord, you will reward us with all these things, but not these things detached from you. These ultimately are reward of knowing and believing and finding intimate joy and peace with you. So, Lord, we love you, and because we love you, we want to study and know your word. Help us do this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.